0: Let's pray. Uh, Father, we need understanding, and you're the source of all understanding. Uh, Father, we need uh, wisdom, uh, and we have it through Jesus, your Son. Uh, We do pray, Lord, as as we've heard your word and as we consider it further, uh, chew it over in our minds and our hearts. Uh, May we indeed uh, uh, gain understanding and gain wisdom, that we might bear you much fruit, fruit that will last. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Well, for three weeks now, we've been working hard to make sense of a message that Isaiah, son of Amos, preached to the people of Jerusalem in or around the year 740 BC. And it's a message that is both confronting and comforting. And it's a long message. Uh, It begins at the start of chapter 2, and it finishes some 84 verses later at the end of chapter 5. And uh, today, Rowan has read to us the last part, and that's the bit we're considering today. And as we hear that message, there are twin themes intertwined. Wealth and wrath. So we're going to think about wealth and wrath. And as we saw last week, Isaiah is preaching to a sophisticated, affluent, and fashionable community. For some 52 years now, Jerusalem, Judah, the nation of Israel as well, they've had peace and military achievement, and the nation of Judah has become rich and prosperous. However, this seems to have had... All this material prosperity, this superabundance, seems to have had a rather deleterious effect on their spiritual health. And the connection between those two things has been noticed for many, many centuries, even before Christ. Rabbis were saying, what's good for the marketplace is bad for the temple, and what's good for the temple is bad for the marketplace. Material prosperity, Prosperity, it is widely recognized, seems closely connected to spiritual poverty. So why might that be? Well, it's complex. We notice as we read the Old Testament that under the terms of the Old Covenant, one of the blessings of faithfulness to God was abundant material prosperity. Blessings. Success in all endeavors. Reading from Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on oath, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him. Then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your ground, in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, the Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season, and to bless all the work of your hands, you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. And, of course, even in a very general way, we can readily appreciate that that actually, just in theory, leading a godly life is likely to lead to material prosperity. In the most general way, we can consider this. For example, if if, if a person uh, does right and avoids wrong, obeys the Ten Commandments, is trustworthy with things entrusted to them, Um, If a person has healthy respect for hard work and for property, for study and learning, for rest on the Sabbath day, um, if, if we do not lie, if we do not lie with our neighbor's wife, if we avoid gross sin and enjoy everything in moderation, well, it's not difficult. These things are healthy principles and lead naturally enough to prosperity and success. But the Old Testament anticipated, indeed, the book of Deuteronomy anticipated that material prosperity would lead to spiritual jeopardy. Again, from the book of Deuteronomy, this time chapter 8. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful... "...that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble you, to test you, so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and strength of my hands has produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors, as it is today. So, in some ways, following God may well lead to material Prosperity, but prosperity leads us in turn to jeopardy. Uh, Let's now return to the text uh, of Isaiah, uh, chapter 5. And we may have noticed that that Isaiah is concluding his long oracle, uh, first with a parable and then with a statement of six woes. The parable likens the nation of Israel to a vineyard. The parable assumes that you know that the nation of Israel was a nation created by God for God. The Lord, uh, Isaiah says, my beloved one, he he did everything needed. He, He saved the descendants of Jacob from Egypt where they were enslaved. He brought them up out of Egypt by way of miracles and signs, guiding and protecting and providing for them for 40 years of wilderness wanderings, establishing them in the land in fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham and then Jacob and Isaac. And indeed, um, Isaac and Jacob, so I reversed their order. Um, And indeed, blessing them there with a good land, a blessed inheritance, a land that they hadn't worked for, crops that they had not sown, a land flowing with milk and honey. The parable is at first um, a rehearsal of the vineyard's creation story, Verse 2, he dug it up and cleared it of stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. So it begins with a rehearsal of the creation story, but suddenly it transforms into a courtroom drama. Isaiah's audience, the nation of Israel themselves, are invited to take their seats at the village gate, so to speak, like the judges of old, in order to sit there and make a judgment as to what might be right and just in such a situation. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard that I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why Did it yield only bad? The situation is clearly unjust and intolerable. And we can all appreciate that from a farming point of view, the situation is worse than disappointing. I I mean, with all due respect, Peter, your your veggie garden may have been disappointing, but your life didn't depend on it. Uh, A return on investment is not just desirable in a farming community, it's necessary. It's imperative. If a vineyard can't fulfill its creation mandate, then it's a liability. could even put lives in danger. If it can't do what it was created to do, it has to be destroyed so as to not waste any further investment, care or concern. And so judgment, justice is coming. Verse 5, Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge And it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And uh, this is um, a forewarning of the desolation of the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem at the hands of the Assyrians in or around the year 701 BC, roughly 40 years away, as Isaiah speaks, together also with the exile of the people of Judah as slaves by the hand of the Babylonians about 100 years later after that. Verse 13, Therefore my people will go into exile, for lack of understanding. Those of high rank will die of hunger, and the common people will be parched with thirst. And verses 26 to the end of the chapter poetically describe an army advancing. God has whistled for the Assyrians, and they are coming. An army advancing irresistibly, unrelentingly, inexhaustibly, undauntedly. Uh, an overwhelming flood of archers, cavalry, and chariots. As irresistible as a great lion, as overwhelming As the ocean. The judgment of God declared in the parable and then detailed and unpacked by way of the speech of six woes. Woe to you, woe to those. Um, The word woe, by the way, simply means extreme sorrow. Um, From this, this we get a clear picture as, as to what actually life was like for that wealthy elite of Jerusalem. They liked to invest in real estate. They built up impressive property portfolios. They liked parties. They liked music. They liked to drink or three. They were into fine wines and elaborate dinners. They had sophisticated tastes and could afford musicians at their banquets, harps and lyres, pipes and timbrels. They were supremely self-confident and thought that they had life all worked out. They were very impressed with their own schemes and clevernesses, their own way of understanding things. And um, there's a lot there that we recognize, isn't isn't there? There's a heck of a lot that, that we recognize. Indeed, we are intimately familiar with it. Along the way, there are indications of the cost of that lifestyle and philosophy in terms of the suffering it wrought in other people's lives. Uh, People evicted or forced to become tenant farmers on land that that once they'd owned, and land that actually was their rightful inheritance, now evicted or perhaps tenants. Justice perverted, the guilty acquitted, while the claims of the innocent frustrated, bloodshed. Cries of distress. But actually, if we're reading it through, we, we, we see that it is not it is not actually the suffering of the poor that drives this passage. It's not contempt for the poor that fires Isaiah up. It is ultimately the mistreatment of God and treating his holiness with contempt that justifies the destruction of God's people. The mistreatment of people is, of course, horrific, but treating the holiness of God with contempt is something altogether vastly more important again. The horror of the text is that God has been treated unjustly. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. The, the scale of God's anger here, his wrath, is, is unimaginable. Yet, for all this, verse 25 continues, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. and So the celebration of the text is that the glory and honor of God's holiness will be restored, it will be exalted. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteousness. The people have not acted justly, but God will. The people have not done righteousness, but God will. So then, returning f- to, for a moment to the theme of, of wealth, um, what's the problem with being rich? Uh, perhaps this would be uh, perhaps this is a really important question uh, to ask: What is the problem with being rich? Well, I think we've seen enough now to answer that question. There's no problem with richness. There's no problem with being rich. There's no problem with wealth. There's no problem with money. It's just that human beings can't be trusted with it. Money is not evil, but people are. When we are materially comfortable to the point of abundance, it is easy... It is easy for all of us, when we are successful, it is easy for all of us to forget God. Or indeed, as we see in the passage, to just give him lip service. It is easy to get proud and assume that we ourselves are the reason for our advancement, success, and achievement. Because deep down inside of us, what drives us is Ultimately, self S- preservation. Self preservation, self satisfaction, self actualization, whatever you want to call it, that, that is, it's all about me deep down. And that is so because I am, you are, we are sinful. If we weren't sinful, if sin wasn't there right at the core, it would be the holiness of God, his glory and honor, that would be our chief goal, our primary driver in everything. But because we are sinful, self-preservation is what drives us, and in times of need, it just so turns out that self-preservation drives us to God. We're aware somewhere of the utter hypocrisy of that, But the grace of God is big enough to cope with it. So self-preservation, albeit sinful, drives us towards God to seek his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, his salvation. Because we know down, we know deep down, that only he can save us. And that's true. But when we find ourselves comfortable, when we find ourselves in times of abundance, and our preservation seems comfortably settled, there are no imminent threats, well, actually, then we allow ourselves the pleasure of forgetting God. And that is useful because we want to be our own gods and to be in control, determining the course, making the plans, seeing them succeed, meeting our own needs. We will find meaning and purpose, we imagine, In the satisfaction of all these appetites. This is, of course, sinful and evil. Our whole orientation becomes anti God. Our values and thinking, what we esteem, what we value, becomes anti God and opposite to God. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Um, and this, of course, is overwhelmingly true for the society we, we live in. Our, our society values things that God hates and hates things that God values. Um, as a as, um, um, kind of trivial example of that, just look at the way we use words. I remember when the word wicked meant exceedingly bad. But about the time I was 30, it suddenly meant good. And I remember when the word sick meant something to be avoided. Now it means excellent. Uh, um, Moreover, um, we we find it hard to find any uh, entertainment at all that doesn't preach anti-God values at some point or another television, computer, social media, YouTube, cinema, whatever it is, books, um, everything preaches anti-God values at some point. Sometimes we we may feel that we can overlook such things, and we can, because we're able to digest it but discard that bit. At other times we find it overwhelming and have to turn it off. Um, The other evening, I thought that maybe it would be educational and good if I actually digested an episode of Married at First Sight. I watched it for about a minute. I couldn't bear it. I turned it off. About 10 minutes later, I came back and thought, no, no, let's give this a go. I turned it back on again, and I lasted about another minute before I just couldn't bear it Um, in terms of how passionately, zealously anti-God it was at every conceivable turn and, and how they're, they're destroying lives for, for entertainment. Um, Anti-God values um, are paraded. They're exalted as true wisdom. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And the point of life in such fashionable and affluent societies becomes what today we'd call conspicuous consumption. Owning more than we need, indulging in luxuries on a lavish scale in order to be admired, in order to satisfy satisfy one's own sense of self, one's own self-worth, in order to signal also to the world superiority from others. Um, That was unmissable in our text. Well, occasionally you'll hear it said, money is the root of all evil. Have you ever heard that said? Yeah. Occasionally you'll hear it said, money is the root of all evil. That is, of course, a profoundly evil thing to say because it is a lie. Paul said, the love of money, where would that reside? Well, that resides in human hearts, doesn't it? The, the, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. In other words, there's nothing wrong with money, but most people can't be trusted with it because they're evil. Is, is there a solution to this terrible state of affairs? Well, thankfully there is, and it's outlined in our passage, and it is the complete destruction of God's people. amazingly, that is only a stopgap measure. The stopgap measure is outlined in our text today, at least for 8th century BC Judeans. It will involve, just to pick out the verbs, it will involve, this stopgap measure will involve removal, destruction, eviction, trampling, desolation, desiccation, starvation, humiliation, burning, and blowing away. God has whistled for the Assyrians, possibly the most brutal and savage of all of the ancient world's armies, and they are coming running. Verse 25 again. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. The destruction of the vineyard... The destruction of God's people is not enough to placate the fierce anger of God. Something more is needed. Something more than this stopgap measure, the destruction of Israel. Fortunately, as Christians, we know what it is. And we're not guessing. We know exactly what it is, definitively and with certainty. And Isaiah knows what it is, and he's going to detail it for us later on in his book, in very fine detail. It's not in the text, but he will get to it, what, what, what the true solution is. Because what's needed is the cross of Jesus Christ. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. The the destruction of sinners, those who rebel against God's right to rule, those who treat God's holiness with contempt, the destruction of sinners only partially but not fully satisfies the justice of God. Ultimately, only God can handle the wrath of God. Jesus died on the cross as God handling his own wrath the matter being dealt with in a sense, internally. Jesus on the cross as a sacrifice of propitiation. That word propitiation meaning taking away the anger. A sacrifice of appeasement. Jesus himself, sinless, died on the cross as God dealing with God's hatred of sin and his radical opposition to evil. And so now the good news for us understanding this, uh, coming to grips with this as Christians, is, is, is we can breathe an infinitely huge sigh of relief now that we know that there is no anger left within God for those who repent and who run to him and come to him through Jesus Christ, his son. As as Paul describes in Romans 3, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of propitiation through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Or as John puts it, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. A friend of mine was talking the other day about an incident that happens to him in his kitchen. Um, For some reason that my friend did not mention, his wife became extremely angry with him. Uh, might sound a very alien and difficult thing to imagine, uh, but this friend, who is a husband, his wife in the kitchen, for some reason that my friend didn't disclose, so I don't know what it was, but for some reason his wife became extremely angry with him. And faced with this inexplicably extreme anger, totally disproportionate, obviously, to the minor offense that he had committed, at least in his own eyes, he wondered why, and he prayed. And God showed him in that moment that the extreme anger was a measure of his wife's extreme care and concern for his welfare. We we may well remember something like this from teachers or parents. The reason I'm so angry is that I care for you. Sometimes we get very angry with someone because we care for them greatly. And we'd get, en- we'd get angry with anything that threatened their welfare, even if the thing that threatened their welfare was them themselves. Well... Perhaps with that in mind, today's text helps us to understand the cross of Christ in a variety of new ways. It helps us to understand what was at stake at the cross, uh, the, the, the unimaginable, for us as human beings, the unimaginable wrath of God, the unimaginable anger of God at human sin and wickedness. With the glory and honor of God at stake, the welfare of his creatures at stake, the justice of God at stake. The text helps us to understand what was at stake at the cross, the unimaginable wrath of God. The text today helps us to understand what the cross has saved us from. Yes, we know that the cross, that Jesus has saved us from sin. Yes, we know that the cross has saved us from ourselves. Do we also understand that the cross has saved us from God? God saving us from God, or more accurately, God saving us from his own wrath. The wrath of God, which is indeed being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and evil. And and the text also helps us to know how to live and how to live in a rich, fashionable, affluent society. The only way to live is by copying Jesus. The only way to live is by living a cross-shaped life. As we live sacrificially, in opposition to the self-preservatory values of our age, we'll see people one for Christ. We'll see people in our families one for Christ. We'll see people in our friendship groups one for Christ. One for Christ as they witness through us, hopefully, by God's grace, the wisdom of God, which is a cross-shaped life. Justice and righteousness, the fruit that God desires, justice and righteousness come from living cross-shaped lives. And the text today helps us to reorient our lives, making the glory and honor of the holy God who made us our fundamental meaning and purpose in life. The Lord be with you.